Welcome to the 35th installment of Ear to the Ground, the Land Stewardship Project's audio magazine podcast. Ear to the Ground features interviews and field reports related to sustainable agriculture, family farming, local food systems, and local democracy. I'm Brian DeVore, editor of the Land Stewardship Letter. On June 29, 2007, the Land Stewardship Project celebrated its 25th anniversary with an event called Keeping the Land and People Together. This evening of readings and discussions featured Wendell Berry. Wendell Berry is an essayist, novelist, and poet who farms in Henry County, Kentucky. His landmark critique of industrial agriculture, The Unsettling of America, Culture and Agriculture, is still as relevant and powerful today as when it was first published three decades ago. That book and other works by Barry served as inspirations for the launching of many nonprofit organizations in the 1980s, including the Land Stewardship Project. Today, Barry is a regular contributor to Orion Magazine. His latest book, Andy Catlett, Early Travels, was published in 2006. During the Keeping in Land and People Together event, Barry read one of his poems and a short story. In this podcast, which is the first in a series, we present Barry giving those readings. Future podcasts will feature readings by authors Mary Rose O'Reilly and Joe Paddock, as well as a panel discussion on the role cultural activities can play in keeping the land and people together. Thank you. I can hardly see you, but it's good to know you're out there. (laughs) Sitting here uh, listening to the opening and enjoying the music and the good feeling that's here, I... uh, realized that I could talk quite a long time about what being here on this occasion means to me. The Land Stewardship Project has made a difference, and it's made an enormous difference to me. Knowing it's here has really mattered to me. But I haven't got time to fool around. (laughs) I'm going to read a, uh, a poem that I think is in the direct line of our interest and then a piece of prose that is probably not. This is the poem. It is hard to have hope. It is harder as you grow old. For hope must not depend on feeling good. And there is the dream of loneliness at absolute midnight. You also have withdrawn belief in the present reality of the future which surely will surprise us. And hope is harder when it cannot come by prediction any more than by wishing. But stop dithering. The young ask the old to hope. What will you tell them? Hope to belong to your place by your own knowledge of what it is that no other place is, and by your caring for it as you care for no other place this place that you belong to, though you do not own it, for it was from the beginning and will be to the end. Your deed of ownership gives you the right of usufruct and of responsibility while you last. Because we have not made our lives to fit our places, the forests are ruined, the fields eroded, the streams polluted, the mountains overturned. Find your hope in what you are not. Hope to become kinder than power instructs you to be, and to become poorer than wealth invites you to be. 
belong to your place by knowledge of the others who are your neighbors in it. The old man, sick and poor, who comes like a heron to fish in the creek, and the fish in the creek, and the heron who manlike fishes for the fish in the creek, and the birds who sing in the trees in the silence of the fisherman and the heron, and the trees that keep the land they stand upon as we too must keep it or die. This knowledge cannot be taken from you by power or by wealth. It will stop your ears to the powerful when they ask for your faith, and to the wealthy when they ask for your land and your work. Answer with knowledge of the others who are here and of how to be here with them. By this knowledge make the sense you need to make. By it stand in the dignity of good sense, whatever may follow. Speak to your fellow humans as your place has taught you to speak, as it has spoken to you. Speak its dialect as your old compatriots spoke it before they had listened to a radio. Speak publicly what cannot be taught or learned in public. Listen privately, silently to the voices that rise up from the pages of books and from your own heart. Be still and listen to the voices that belong to the stream banks and the trees and the open fields. There are songs and sayings that belong to this place by which it speaks for itself and no other. Found your hope, then, on the ground under your feet. Your hope of heaven, let it rest on the ground underfoot. Be lighted by the light that falls freely upon it after the darkness of the nights and the darkness of our ignorance and madness. Let it be lighted also by the light that is within you, which is the light of imagination. By it you see the likeness of people in other places to yourself in your place. It lights invariably the need for care toward other people, other creatures, in other places, as you would ask them for care toward your place and you. No place at last is better than the world. The world is no better than its places. Its places at last are no better than their people. When the people have made dark the light within them, the world darkens. How does outer light become this inner light? By being born of woman, becoming human. That's the poem. And and this is the prose. Burley Coulter's story of his fortunate fall. It has been a long, long time since old Uncle Bub Leavers was called on to pray 
at the Bird's Branch Church for the first and only time in his life. And he stood up and said, O Lord, bless me and my son Jasper. Amen. The Lord must have thought that was a good idea. For with his help, maybe, Jappy Leavers grew up and got himself educated for a lawyer. When he hung out his sign in Hargrave, he wasn't Jappy Leavers anymore. He was J. Robert LaVere, attorney at law. That might not have been all put on. Some say that LaVere's was what the Leaverses were before they turned up around Port William. People in Port William don't say things they haven't heard of. They never had heard of LaVere's. They had heard of Leaver's. With the Lord's help, maybe, maybe not, Mr. LaVere got to be a rich man. Getting rich, you know, does not always meet with everybody's approval. There was always somebody or several bodies in Port William who would tell you confidently that Mr. LaVere got rich by finding out where the money was and helping himself to a good deal more than his share. In fact, they didn't know, and I don't know. To find out how such things are done, you will have to ask somebody besides me. Maybe you can do like Mr. LaVere, who gaveth the credit to the Lord, at the same time keeping a good deal of it for himself. The Lord maybe not minding, maybe. Anyhow, the Lord either did or didn't bless Mr. LaVere with the money he scraped together by the time he was 45 or so, when he bought the biggest house in Hargrave with, a front, with front porch columns two stories tall. After Uncle Bub died, Mr. LaVere kept the old Leaver's home place out on Bird's Branch, and as the chances came, he bought other farms, hither and yon. So he was right smart of a big deal, and on the downward slope, when he topped himself off by taking to wife, as Wheeler Catlett put it, the elegant, accomplished, and beautiful Miss Charlotte Riggins. Miss Charlotte was from somewhere off. She could have been rich herself, for all I know, maybe, maybe not, but she did come up in the world by changing her name from Riggins to LaVere and setting up housekeeping in the biggest house in Hargrave. How Mr. LaVere and Miss Charlotte hit it off as a loving couple is anybody's guess. I somehow never quite could imagine it myself, so I will leave it to you. But Mr. LaVere lived long enough that by the time he died, Miss Charlotte had taken on all his dignity and become a great lady. By the time Mr. LaVere departed, Miss Charlotte's hair had turned mortally blue. But she wasn't exactly an old woman yet. If widowhood hadn't suited her so well and with all her goods and money, surely somebody would have married her. I reckon I might have married her myself, maybe, if she had ever asked me. Mr. LeVere died at about the start of the Depression, or a little before, and Wheeler Catlett, who was a wingshot of a young lawyer then, settled the old man's estate, nearly all of it directly onto Miss Charlotte. At about the same time, the tenant on the old Leaver's place gave it up, and Wheeler traded with Grover Gibbs to be the new tenant. And so Grover and his wife Beulah and their children moved into the old Leaver's house, that was the Gibbs house then, until Grover retired onto the Social Security. Grover was one of my old running mates, so from then on I was party to the doings of Miss Charlotte and to her, what do you call it, relationship, I guess, with Grover. Grover was probably the ideal man for the place. Wheeler probably couldn't have done any better. The Leaver's place was run down, but was still a pretty good farm, 
and Grover was a pretty good farmer, so it was a fit. Being a pretty good farmer was good enough for Grover. Now and again, when he was a little down in the mouth, he would make the usual complaints about farming on the halves. But being a tenant farmer suited him really well enough. He didn't want the trouble it would have cost him to pay for a farm of his own. He had several other things he needed to see to, fishing and hunting and drinking a little whiskey from time to time for his health and holding up his end of the conversation out at town. Well, he held up his end along with the ends of several others in case they couldn't make it. And two, he took a particular pleasure in his relationship with Miss Charlotte. Miss Charlotte, you might say, was an enjoyable lady. I don't believe she was as enjoyable a lady as Beulah Gibbs, but she was in her own way enjoyable. Wheeler, who was Miss Charlotte's lawyer for the next 30 or so years, had the gift of enjoying her for her own sake, which was fortunate for Wheeler. For after she died, her relatives decided that her estate was beyond the powers of a country lawyer. So Wheeler was paid for, in fact, a lot of bother, mostly by a little pleasure. But Grover enjoyed the idea of himself as her tenant and the idea of her as his landlady. While she was still a widow in mourning, Miss Charlotte took over the supervision of the farms. And I don't believe there has been anything like it in the history of the world before or since. She would come riding in, always unexpectedly, in the back seat of her long green car that was about the same color as folding money. It would be shined so slick, Grover said, that a housefly couldn't stand up on it. She would be wearing a dress that was like a cloud or a flower bed in full bloom or like a pool with goldfish. This is Grover talking. And she would have on white gloves and a hat with a veil. And if the weather was the least bit cool, she would have a fox or a mink fur piece around her neck and her hands stuck into a fur muff with every hair standing on end. And she would be sitting straight up like a queen in a picture, in reference strictly to herself. Driving her would be Willard Safely of the black branch of the Hargrave Safely's, wearing a black coat and an official little black chauffeur's cap with a bill, Willard being a whole nother item of interest himself. When he wasn't wearing his black coat to be Miss Charlotte's chauffeur, he would be her butler or table waiter wearing a white coat. His wife, Bernice, was Miss Charlotte's cook and housemaid, always starched and white and waiting to be told what to do. Willard's life was in a way glorious, for who else anywhere around drove such a car? But it was difficult, too, and not just when Miss Charlotte joined forces with Bernice in regard to several of his pleasures. I know some of what I know, not just from Grover, but also from Wheeler. I don't mean to give you the idea that Wheeler Catlett went around gossiping about his clients, but when his boy Andy got big enough to be some account at work, he would tell us things. At that age, Andy wasn't always on the best of terms with his father, but he enjoyed Wheeler's knowledge and his language. So when we were all together at work and the stories would get started, Andy sometimes had good things to pass along. It's a mystery how the voices gather. Our talk at row ends or in the barn or stripping room would call up the voices of the absent and the dead. Somebody maybe would wonder what old Uncle Bub would think of Miss Charlotte. And though we never knew him and he never knew her, he would say about her what he said about everything of wonder. Hell and damn it, boys, she's a ringtail twister. About everybody knew of Miss Charlotte and took some interest in her. 
She was surrounded, you might say, with observation, and of course also, as Wheeler said, with her own glitter. Grover said he could tell when she was coming because first he would see Willard in his chauffeur's cap driving around the corner of the rock fence along the driveway. And then well behind him, Miss Charlotte would come into sight in the back seat. They would drive up in front of the feed barn. They would look around. If they didn't see Grover, Miss Charlotte would tell Willard to blow the horn and he would give forth a long toot. When Grover appeared, if he did, Miss Charlotte would roll her window down. Grover, you would think, might have gone over and leaned down to speak to her at a respectful level through the window. But Grover never felt dressed for the occasion. So he stood back at some distance, requiring her to raise her voice to, as he put it, his level, to speak to him, and he would holler back to her. She took herself too seriously to notice that he took her unseriously. Grover, are you giving milk regularly to the cats? Yes, ma'am, Miss Charlotte. Grover, you aren't looking well. Are you well? I was feeling pretty well, Miss Charlotte, but I got over it. I see you have a nice automobile, Grover, she said once, pointing to one of Grover's semi-wrecks that he said would roll down any hill it couldn't pull up. What kind is it? A small Packard, Miss Charlotte. Grover liked that remark so well that every car he had from then on, he always called it the small Packard. But maybe more often than she came, Miss Charlotte would send Willard by himself. When she sent Willard, it was usually with a message she didn't want to deliver in person. Neither one of them ever said so, but Willard and Grover saw eye to eye on a lot of things. They enjoyed a lot of the same pleasures without ever so much as a look or a wink passing between them. Willard's natural laugh was something to see and hear. He would bend way forward and then rear way back and give out a great free bellow that would loosen shingles. But when more was going on than met the eye, he had a little pecking laugh. <laughs> Miss Charlotte was maybe the president of the widows and old maids of the Hargrave aristocracy. And she made a big thing of giving all her constituents an old ham every Christmas. A big ham to the widows with families and a little ham to the old maids. How she got the little hams was a matter of some embarrassment to Willard and a matter of artistic pride and satisfaction to Grover. Every fall, when the nights were getting cold and hog-killing time was getting close, Willard would come driving in by himself. He would say, Trim them shoulders round, Mr. Grover. <laughs> Miss Charlotte's hogs, you see, were the only ones ever known to have hams at both ends. They had hams coming and going, Wheeler Catlett said. Sure enough, Grover could trim a shoulder so anybody who didn't know the difference would take it for a ham. And the aristocratic old maids at Hargrave didn't know the difference. When it was coming Christmas, there would be Willard again by himself. He would back the big car up to the smokehouse door. Grover would hand the yearling hams out to Willard, and every time Grover handed him one of the little hams, Willard, never looking at Grover, said, Hey, hey, hey. What made Willard laugh, his big true laugh, was this. One afternoon, Willard was driving Miss Charlotte and a lesser widow and two or two and Miss Agnes Hartsey's home from some function. And they were overtaken by a big storm of rain at the same time that Miss Hartsey's, full of coffee, was overtaken by an urge to uncork herself that she was powerless to resist. This is Wheeler talking. 
Miss Hartsey's was a school teacher and a lady of the strictest religion. Her virtue, Wheeler said, was a mighty fortress that she had successfully defended against every assault, as many maybe as one. Anyhow, and this was probably something else new in history, Miss Charlotte made Willard stand out in the rain to hold an umbrella over Miss Hartsey's while she peed, I'm sure, a genteel little trickle on the gravel. The only one who would have told that was bound to be Willard, so I guess he told it. And of course it got back to Grover. And Grover, who liked to hear Willard laugh, would say perfectly serious, Willard, I hate to ask it of you, but that coffee's working on me. Have you got your umbrella? When Miss Charlotte came to supervise the farming, she never got out of the car. Her need to supervise was fulfilled just by making the trip, passing a few words with Grover, and looking lovingly across the hollow behind the house at the roof of what she called Father Lavere's tobacco barn. Father Lavere was what with deep respect and daughterly love she called Uncle Bub. It had been Uncle Bub's barn, sure enough, and hard telling who's before him. It was old, part of it was log. It went back maybe to the time of D. Boone. It had been pieced out and added to by later generations until it sprawled all over the hillside. Sometime toward the end of, this, of his earthly passage, Mr. Lavere got a good deal on what it must, on it, on it must have been a barrel or two of blue paint. And he hired some brave fellows to brush it onto the rusty roof of that old barn. And so when Miss Charlotte looked at Father Lavere's barn, what she saw was half an acre of blue roof that made Chicken Little look like a true prophet. You could say, and maybe Mr. Lavere did say, that a barn is no better than its roof. But Miss Charlotte's philosophy on barns was that if the roof is all right, then the barn is all right. In fact, under the roof, the barn was just a collection of splices and patches. It was tiered off with old fence rails and locust poles, all nailed and wired up every which way. All of us who ever worked in it fell out of it at least once. And there was a big old cedar tree grown up on the, hill, on the downhill side with its limbs bushed out until they touched the wall. The tree had no business there, but way before Grover, some tenant had let it get started and every one since had left it maybe as a comment on the barn that said more or less to hell with it. Well, after Grover had been there, must have been four or five years, the rust began showing through the blue paint to where it was visible even to Miss Charlotte. And faithful to tradition, she wanted it painted again with blue paint. She put the proposition to Grover, but Grover couldn't do it. He couldn't work high off the ground. It made the world whirl. It made him so dizzy and sick he couldn't hardly hold his dinner. He was so scared he would fall. This was either true or it wasn't. But it saved Grover a good deal of trouble, along with maybe his neck. <laughs> so Miss Charlotte authorized Grover to see who would take the job, and Grover put the proposition to my brother Jarrett, who took him up. Out of generosity, he took him up on my behalf as well as his own. Hang on, I said. I don't want to paint that damned roof. I can't spare the time. And high places make me sick like they do Grover. Jarrett, a man of few words, said, you could use the money. Matter of fact, I could. But like Jarrett, I could also have done without it. And unlike Jarrett, would have been glad to. But I was in and I knew it. 
Jared had traded with Grover for $2 a day and our dinner, dinner to be furnished by Beulah Gibbs, which was the best part of the deal, for Beulah was a fine cook, paint and brushes and so on to be furnished by Miss Charlotte. So as soon as we got our crops laid by, we gathered up ladders and ropes and everything we thought we'd need, and we got started. We had a long job of it. That roof must have been half an acre, give or take a tenth or two. And in them days, nobody had thought of spraying paint or rolling it on. We rubbed it on with brushes, making sure to cover the nail heads and the rust, doing a thorough good job. We did the uphill side first because that was the bigger side. But also, we wanted to get ourselves well used to the job before we got to work on the downhill side, which was all of it steep and almighty high at the eave. To tell the truth, I didn't have Grover's problem with heights, but I knew that if you fell from so high onto that old ledgy hillside, you wouldn't get up again maybe until resurrection morning. Finally, we did conquer the uphill side. We passed our ropes over the comb of the roof then and tied our ladders on the downhill side. And we were keeping our feet always on the ladder rungs. We weren't taking any chances. We started each one on a side and worked toward the middle. After it seemed like 40 days and 40 nights, we were working pretty close together, which back then wasn't always the ideal arrangement for Jarrett and me. We came back onto the roof one day after dinner and went at it again. We were meaning to get the job over with that day if it took us till dark. I don't know why it is, but even when you're getting paid by the day, you want to get on. You're eager to get on, just as you'd be if you were working for yourself at no wage. And it did seem like we'd been there nearly forever, when there were better things to do. Looked back at it, it was beginning to seem like a waste. And my Lord, it was hot. You couldn't touch that roof barehanded, and you could barely see for the sweat. It was pure punishment. By the middle of the afternoon, I began to feel unhappy with Jarrett for including me in the deal. I began to put on a little speed, laying that paint on slappity-slap, knowing he couldn't help but hear. I had to keep it up quite a while before he said anything. Finally, he said, What's your hurry? It's time we were getting done with this, I said, no matter that we were clearly getting done with it. Seems like we've been at this a damn year. I'm tired of the view. He didn't answer, but I knew he was getting mad. It would make him mad when you were being unserious about work. I went on, slappity-slap, loading my brush with paint and making it pop against the roof. Jarrett was commenting by not saying anything. I was cooking him on a slow fire. And I ought to have had my ass kicked, for the poor fellow all his life had a hard time of it than I did. But being a man of weak character, I couldn't stop. I said, I got places to go and things to do. He went ahead, serious about his work, and didn't say anything for another while. And then he said, well, just so you don't slobber it on. I straightened up and unseriously rolled a cigarette and stuck it in the corner of my mouth and lit it and picked up my bucket and brush. I hadn't hardly more than just started painting again when we heard this low buzzing way off in the sky, and it got louder. We looked where the sound was coming from, and directly out of the heat haze and the shimmer, this airplane just appeared. Back then, an airplane was a rare sight, and this one was a four-winger, flying lower than we'd ever seen one. 
The idea that somebody was in that thing flying through the sky seemed to come somewhere between prime idiocy and a miracle. It passed right over the top of us. And then several events took place so fast they almost happened at the same time. While I was looking so straight up that my hat started to fall off, I stepped backwards to see better and threw my whole weight right onto the wet paint. I grabbed for my hat with my right hand that had the loaded brush in it and only painted the side of my face. The hat was gone. And so was I, of course. I dropped bucket and brush both to try for a handhold in the thin air and didn't find one. Half a gallon of spilled paint makes a tin roof uncommonly slick. I hadn't had time to fall over, so I was going down that roof standing up like a boy sliding on ice. And I was saying very clearly in my mind, Well, this is the end of you, old bud. I shot off the roof right into the top of that old cedar tree. And that's how come I'm here to tell about it. I never could make my mind up whether it was providence or luck. So I split the middle and thanked providence for my luck. A tree like that, you know, grows its top branches upwards and its lower ones outwards. As I was flying in among them and breaking them off, the top branches gave me a pretty good raking, taking some skin here and there, and I reckon that slowed me down. When I came to the outreaching lower branches, they just bent and tumbled me from one to the next, sort of gently, maybe gracefully, until the bottom one dropped me without too much of a thump onto the ground. And there I sat, spraddle-legged in the shade, cooler than I'd been since dinner. When I got reorganized enough to look up at where I'd come from, there was Jared, holding to his rope and looking over the eave of the roof to see what was left of me. We looked back and forth at each other what seemed a long time, and it was awfully quiet. After a while, he said, Well, are you practicing up for something, or was that it? It came to me I was alive. That cigarette was still stuck in the corner of my mouth, still lit. I didn't answer. I sat there with half my face painted blue and finished my smoke. Jarrett watched me until I reckon he was satisfied, and then he got back to being himself. Long as you're on the ground, how about getting us a fresh jug of water? LSP's history and future plans, go to www.landstewardshipproject.org and click on the About Us link. Send your comments and suggestions about this podcast to me, Brian DeVore, at bdevore at landstewardshipproject.org. You can also call me at 612-729-6294. A special thank you goes out to Laura Borgendale, a Western Minnesota musician who provided Ear to the Ground's theme music. And a very special thank you to all of Land Stewardship Project's members who make initiatives such as this podcast possible. If you're not a member and would like to support us, go to landstewardshipproject.org to learn how to join LSP. Thanks for listening.